0: Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about because they're never just about the way you look. I'm your host, Jess Nealon, and today I have a special guest. This is Jessica Wilson, who is a dietitian, community organizer, and the author of the book It's Always Been Ours, rewriting the story of Black women's bodies, and also co creator of the Amplify Melanated Voices Challenge that went viral on social media in 2020. She also co-hosted a podcast called My Black Body, which changed the conversation about who has eating disorders and how treatment fails so many people. And her experiences navigating the dietetics field as a Black queer dietitian really set her apart from a lot of others in the field. And also personally, I just really love all of her work and content. And I'm really excited to have you here, Jessica. Welcome. Thanks. Um, Yeah. So first up, uh, you are a registered dietitian, which is a title that very often makes me roll my eyes immediately and prepare for a lot of cringy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know that you are, you are very different in a lot of your views and the work that you do. So I would love to hear a little bit about how you came to do what you do and what separates you from a lot of other RDs. That's a great
1: question. Um, I was looking for a career path that (laughs) was pretty stable, uh, which is what, you know, partially got me into dietetics. Uh, Another option I was given was nursing. And that sounded like a lot harder and like blood and gross things uh, that I didn't want to deal with. (laughs) So um, dietetics was another option uh, that I was happy to join because I got to talk about food all day. Um, And then in undergrad, I was one of maybe like five students of color in my program and definitely the only Black student in the program that I was in. Um, And then that was at UC Davis. And then at Oregon Health Sciences University, I was definitely the only Black person in there and maybe like two people of color. So it wasn't until 2020 that I met another black dietitian. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, that was Whitney Trotter. And I think she's the best. I love uh, But now I know so many because of those connections that we made. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I got to do doing the stuff that I do because I was just seeing how um, the field wasn't serving folks of color, how it was pathologizing, you know, cultural diets and, you know, people shouldn't have, uh, let's see beans and tortillas, like carbs and carbs, uh, non yeah. and Oh gosh. It was bananas. And so that, and also the way it treated people at the higher end of the weight spectrum mm-hmm. made me like 100% pivot in like what type of work I do.
0: Amazing. I actually want to have you talk a little bit about the um, pathologizing of cultural food. I think that's such an interesting topic and not one Well, so I came from the fitness industry. I was a personal trainer before I do what I do now. So certainly not one that I ever heard back when I was like really wrapped up in fitness, wellness, diet culture stuff. Um, But I am now aware of, and is so fascinating to me that it just like, didn't even come across my plate. Like literally uh, this idea of, yeah, what did you say? Beans and tortillas in the same meal would be pathologized by like low carb culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can you give some examples of how that shows up or, or the kind of work you do in that space?
1: Yeah. One of the questions that I would get regularly um, when I worked in college health is like, are tacos unhealthy <laughs> Like on a regular basis? Or um, let's see, I had a client who was Persian and really loved Persian rice, but that was made with white rice and she thought she should be eating quinoa. So she just didn't eat dinner. Oh, that was like the, the summary of that story. Um, and Yeah. A lot of people were saying, I only know how to cook Mexican food. I don't know how to cook, you know, quinoa and kale. So I don't know what to do at the end of the day. Um, the carb plus carb for sure. Um, over 50% of the world's population has white rice as a staple, but for some reason in the U S like we're just not supposed to eat it at all. So, oh, and also when I think of many times, um, for a lot of us, the like small handful of folks of color, we were always taught about what like those people ate, like what black people ate, what, you know, Mexican people. Yeah. yeah. And we're like in those classes, you know, wondering what is happening here, what they ate, which is really what like I was supposed to be eating, but also not supposed to be eating. Yeah, it was a wild out of body experience. And it
0: also, I mean, I think- (laughs) it strips such, it strips humanity basically from the entire process yeah. of eating, right? I mean, that is like, um, yeah, but it it has a, a complete erasure of culture as like having any value to talk about food from mm-hmm. that place, right?
1: Yeah, um, erase it first of all, because we're here to talk about, yeah, what is healthy according to like the dietetic association, which whatever that is, um, and it's trash and it's super fat phobic. So yeah. yeah, just forget everything you knew about what <laughs> your family, you know, is eating and yeah, yeah it's terrible.
0: So what do you say to, to clients in that kind of position? Like, what do you recommend or how do you talk about it when they come in and they're like, everything I ever learned is supposed to be unhealthy now
1: right um so we usually dissect it and say you know like where did those messages come from and not you know discounting that their experience like is that you know they have been taught that these things are quote unhealthy but like why so the impacts of like medical racism and white supremacy on like food and food culture and how we look at you know certain foods with this like moralistic lens. Yeah. yeah. And so if we strip all that away, you know, what would you be eating and, you know, how would that make you feel? Yeah. I
0: like that. So simple at its base, but you have to like wade through all the bullshit for. Yeah. First. Um, I actually have kind of a funny story about this because when I left New York City I also left the fitness industry so this was like sort of my first time I was like a nomad so I was traveling and I lived in Thailand for three months at the same time that I was like basically for the first time giving up counting macros and Mm. trying to be like you know whatever structured about my food and exercise and, uh, you know, for a long time after doing that, you still have the the tracking oh, yeah. mode on like in the back of your brain, right? You're like, I know exactly how many grams of protein are in this thing, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Thailand, I would never know what the hell I was eating. I would just get mm-hmm. a bowl of something and I would be like, literally, I couldn't even tell you if this is like a fish, a vegetable. Mm-hmm. Like I don't <laughs> even understand what any of it is. And it's all so delicious. And it was really healing to have something that felt like, like it, I had no tracker for it. And Mm -hmm. also it was so like soul nourishing and just, oh my God, it was an amazing experience. And I wonder sometimes how much harder that would have been if I had just been living in the U S trying not to be structured around my food anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. Totally. That's a good point. Um, so something that
0: you talk about a lot in your work is how our culture is obsessed with making quote unquote health an individual issue rather Mm -hmm. than like a social or systemic one. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to have you explain a little bit about the term, uh, like a social construction of health and then about how this, you know, pattern shows up and harms people.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, public health and medicine, will talk all the time about, you know, our, Social determinants of health, and be able to list like twenty different things that impact you know our health and well-being. You know our environment, food access, trauma, um, racism, classism—all of you like twenty different things that actually impact whether or not we're healthy under the guise and guidelines of medicine. But when they try to talk about to us like as individuals, it's always eat less and exercise more, <laughs> right? The reason that you have whatever it is, you know, ex- you're experiencing is because you're not eating enough vegetables and because you're not yeah. exercising enough. Um, and somehow like that's just supposed to be the miracle cure for like right. systemic racism, which is wild. So if we spent all that time and energy, you know, telling people to eat less and exercise more, like what could we actually accomplish? Mm. Yeah.
0: Um, so in all of this, the social construction of health is what is it like the perception of what's healthy?
1: So I talk about health with like a capital H (laughs) and we like to think that, you know, it just boils down to, you know, what your lab values are, what your blood pressure is, but health looks away, you know? Um, health is thin it's fit depending on what kind of fit, you know, depending on what decade, (laughs) like if it's (laughs) skinny fit, if it's, you know, more bulky, it's fit. fit, Okay. It's yeah. Yep. Who knows whatever it is at the time. Um, it looks like that it is also middle upper class. So you look like you have money. Um, and it's just all these markers basically of, like class and ease, and really whiteness in our society, and size of course is a big piece of that. Because so if health actually meant, you know, it was just about your like labs, blood pressure, etc. Yeah. Then so many larger people would be healthy, but it's not because health is, you know, a social construct and it looks a certain way in All our right. society. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember years ago when I first saw this Ted talk on like the biggest determinant or uh, what was it? Like basically the biggest factor that can predict longevity, how long you live was social connection. Yep. And again, I was like in the, in the fitness industry and I was like, no way that can't be it. Like, there's just no way, like it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And since then, obviously I've learned so much more about it and it just feels absolutely bonkers to me that we still focus on these like really zoomed in details when it, the research just does not bear that out as Mm -hmm. the big factors that matter.
1: Yeah. It's like the, you know, people who are 95 and like doing Mm -hmm. really well, even if they're also smoking, it's because like their family and friends are around them. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll be like, oh, my, my secret to hell
0: is I eat a bowl of ice cream and a glass of whiskey every night. And you're like, well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but they're happy and they're low stress because they're connected and it's all these things that actually matter.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, so in your experience then, especially like with clients, uh, on the higher end of the weight spectrum, what does this social construction of health do to them? Like what's the impact?
1: Sure. Um, like there's always this, quote, pursuit of health, if you're trying to be like a well-behaved person who is larger, right? Um, There's a really great cartoon, you know, by Stacey Bias that goes through all of the, like, quote, good fatty, you know, constructions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's the people who are doing all the diet and exercise who also just happen to be fat. You know, there's the fat athletes who are, you know, only accepted because they're doing athletic pursuits. So it's really more about like, the respectability of fat politics when your body just does not conform to what society finds as desirable, all these ways Mm -hmm. that people can try and, you know, mitigate some of that fat phobia by performing, but also it just, you know, creates eating disorders and then eating disorders that are not diagnosed because people aren't super thin, um, shaming, you know, how people view themselves means, you know, something, you know, if people who are larger feel, Um, fine about themselves. Like they still have to go outside. So,
0: you know, we, yeah, yeah,
1: they still have to buy clothes, you know, sit on airplanes, all of these things. So yeah, it's just, you know, inherently harmful for us to yeah. Look at larger folks as if they're unhealthy.
0: Yeah. And given the research on how dieting is one of the biggest predictors of weight gain, like the fact that All of this shaming leads to dieting and dieting leads to eating disorders and all of these mental health issues and just so many things plus weight gain, which now means the stigma is even higher is like, again, I feel like people don't realize until they get into the sort of anti-diet world, um, that this advice is absolutely backwards.
1: Right. Totally.
0: When it comes to, um, (laughs) the eating disorder field. I am not obviously in it myself, but a lot of my clients with body image issues, they have histories of eating disorders, or they're currently like in recovery and all that kind of stuff. Um, I see a lot firsthand of how treatment fails Mm -hmm. these people and even more so in bodies that are not like the stereotypical eating disorder body we've been fed, which is like white, thin, young cisgender. Um, what, what is your experience on sort of seeing that play out and how it's impacted by this stigma and, um,
1: capital H health. (laughs) Right. I would say it is a small percentage of my clients that are thin white, cis, um, straight women. Um, most everyone is not and not, doesn't see themselves, of course, as having an eating disorder. So, first mm-hmm. off, you know, folks aren't getting assessed, they're not getting, you know, the support that they need. One, because they don't know that what they're doing isn't, you know, perhaps unhealthy. Two, because they're not believed. They're oftentimes, for larger folks, they're given praise, you know, for, you know, dieting mm-hmm. or losing weight when it's really part of, you know, restriction and starvation. Um, yeah. So, having you know, to talk to people and introduce the concept of like eating more, especially when they're coming to me about how to eat less. Um, that one can be really hard for some people. So do you have people come to you who are just looking for weight loss? Oh, Oh, all the time. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I guess because you work with eating disordered patients, I was imagining that like everyone was already kind of coming in with that understanding, but no, no.
1: Um, I might have like some magical trauma-informed, you know, cure for weight loss when, you know, other people have been, uh, you know, just calories (laughs) and calories out, but, you know, as a different type of dietitian, maybe I have like a different way. I'm like, oh no, 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 I don't. This is, yeah, not the work that I do. So how do you
0: walk a client through that process of, I'd like to lose weight. Can you help me to all of that is bullshit that's been fed to you through oppressive systems. And also it's not healthy. Like that's a massive shift. Yeah.
1: Um, I'll typically ask about their, you know, dieting history, as you already mentioned, there is like no diet that works. Um, And so oftentimes people have, you know, like lost weight or and regain weight. And so just talking about that and, you know, why do you think that is? Do you think that your body size is naturally perhaps larger? Uh, Let's talk about what it would mean. Um, yeah. And then what is your identity say, if you're, you know, not able to lose weight, other Mm -hmm. folks are already, you know, chronically almost starving and it's really hard, uh, oftentimes for people who have gained like social capital from, you know, dieting and restricting to then say like the reason that your hair is falling out, you know, is because, you're not eating enough food and, you know, watching them like weigh the benefits of, you know, like being well-nourished and having their lab uh, results, like turn to like normal after starving or, you mm-hmm. know, giving up that social capital. And, you know, sometimes people are not, you know, interested in finding, you know, a way to eat more and regain lost yeah. weight because it's already hard in society.
0: Yeah. There's so much grief work in that too the giving up of social capital to get healthy. It's literally like, do I abandon myself or do I abandon this privilege? Mm-hmm. And it is so painful.
1: Yeah. It's hard. What do you see as
0: challenges facing folks in marginalized bodies in this situation versus privileged bodies? Do you feel like they they have to face different challenges throughout that journey to get to that place?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think about it in the context of body positivity too. Um, so for, we'll say like size 10 or size 12 white women, um, you know, being a size eight or a size 12 is really, you know, not going to make that much of a difference when it comes to say like a job or finding a partner Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of these things, but, you know, for trans folks, queer folks, black folks, Brown folks, disabled people, you know, they're like inherently less likely to get a job that they apply for. And, you know, if there is some way to lose some weight in order to, you know, look more desirable, the, you know, pressure can exist in that way to do so. So, you know, the thinking ourselves into, you know, feeling better about our bodies again, like it's possible for some folks, but, you know, others are really exposed to, you know, systemic and structural um, oppression. So yeah, it's totally different. And also yeah. with um, trans folks and non-binary folks, restriction, you know, can be one way to not have like hip development mm-hmm. and breast development, right? So you know, that's another like, do we find another way? Because yeah. you know there are other ways. So do we look at those, or you know, yeah, do we continue yeah. to look at starvation as a way to quote solve what's going on here? And do you ever, like, is that something that you ever
0: end up doing? I mean, not starvation necessarily, but like, do you ever support a client in a marginalized body, like going down the path of trying to pursue weight loss?
1: No, I see that there are people out there who will do it because there are, (laughs) you can, you know, just like throw a rock and find a, you know, dietitian, a coach or whomever that will support people in weight loss. And yeah, that's just not, that's not me. And that's okay.
0: So you'll just be like, find someone to yeah. take you on this path. Cause that's mm-hmm. not me. That's mm-hmm. fair. Um, so one thing that I, I feel like is different across the eating disorders is like, I know that this uh, stigma and, and bias shows up everywhere, but particularly around the word anorexia, just because of the, the like imagery, I think that we were given like in mm-hmm. the last couple of decades anyway, around what that looks like um, and that I find That people in larger bodies are the least likely to notice that they have anorexia or seek help or be believed or any of these things, um, access treatment, because that one in particular, we, we imagine has to be emaciated. Mm -hmm. And also because the literal, uh, DSM five, uh, tells us that in order to be diagnosed, you have to be, I forget what it is, but there's a weight component to it. What are your thoughts on
1: that? Yeah. Um, Atypical, quote, atypical anorexia um, for everybody who's not quote underweight uh, mm-hmm. is way more typical. And, yeah. you know, when, you know, larger folks go to the doctor and you know are asked what they're eating and it's basically nothing, um, they're given praise for that. Again, or weight loss, you know, they're given praise and they're not assessed for an eating disorder. Um, and what yeah. like doctors will recommend, you know, to be quote, healthier or to lose weight, um. It's five to ten percent body weight loss um, mm-hmm. for whatever it is. But if we're looking at the research of like what oftentimes can you know atypical anorexia can look like, it is that five to ten percent you know body weight loss in a certain period of time. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like this is
0: one of those things that just makes me want to bang my head against a wall. And I know you obviously have gone through it so many times, but uh, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts if you want to give a little insight into where this came from and where you think or hope it's going in this, uh, eating disorder treatment field around weight bias and stigma and just, yeah, like the history and also where you hope it goes.
1: I think, well, what's made pretty clear, uh, the eating disorder field is really like grounded in psychiatry and medicine, especially white men. Um, who were you know pretty invested in you know the thin white woman like as frail you know as in need of tending yeah. um and so really wanting to do you know support you know women and girls you know who are afraid of being fat um basically who are a size i don't know like four when they're afraid of being a size eight mm-hmm. and, you know just really supporting them to get that way um and So, you know, when your diagnosis and when your field is so invested and people who are afraid of becoming fat, like, how do you let in people who are actually fat, right? You can't Mm -hmm. and really like have the same values because people who are fat are not afraid of being, you know, fat just because, you know, they are. And it's this, you know, people are afraid of fat phobia. It's not necessarily being fat, right? So people can feel fine about, you know, their weight if, you know, they're at the higher end of the weight spectrum, but if people are trash, you know, like they want to lose weight oftentimes. So yeah, like letting people who are quote average or larger into like team anorexia just doesn't fit with like the frail, Mm -hmm. like in need of tending, you know, white White. girl or white woman that people just really want to rally around. Yeah, absolutely. Could you define fat phobia for us here? Oh, sure. It's just, you know, so there's the structural ways and then there's anti-fatness. So there's like the individual bias, um, the ways that we've been taught to like view fat people, which is inherently like gluttonous, lazy. We assume, you know, people are just sitting around and eating quote, unhealthy food all the time and never exercising. Um, so because of those inherent biases, also people are not smart. We're told, um, yeah, yeah, lacking intelligence. So those are like the individual stuff that we've been told by society. Um, then there's like the structural fat phobia and anti-fatness and, you know, clothing sizes, airplane seats, you know, lecture halls, stadium seating, and all of that stuff that comes out, but really looking, and taking it back like where did the gluttony like values or lack of um let's see I'll say purity values come from and you know it's yeah yeah. yeah, right it's religion it's um Anglo-Saxon like values of purity that just you know inherently privilege those who are looking like they're abstaining rather than those who are Mm-hmm. Yeah, who are eating food, but as we know, like your size doesn't have anything to do with what you're eating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I
0: have heard well, so first of all, I just want to clarify it. there's two different aspects to fat phobia. One you're saying is the perception uh, just like individual person to person perceptions, often subconscious, uh, often conscious of like how we perceive a person based on their body size. The other one is systemic discrimination facing Mm -hmm. people in larger body sizes. Um, and I often hear people who choose not to use the word fat phobia because it, it isn't really a fear in the classic phobia sense. Mm Um, you know, similar to homophobia, I guess.
1: Yeah.
0: It would be more like, uh, homo hatred, you know and and fat hatred. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you do you use the term yourself fat phobia?
1: I use it because my fat friends will use it a lot mm-hmm. and I don't want to discount their experience. Um so there are you know fat folks who have said, you know I'm going to use anti-fatness yeah um rather than fat phobia because you know either fat phobia is you know thought to be ableist because it is't an actual fear. but I've asked my mm-hmm. friends who were you know close to me and they, you know, have seen people like recoil at their existence. Uh, so they feel it's what I will say, like some feel, um, that it is fat phobia. There's research that looks at people and everything that they would give up in order to not be fat. And it's like, they would rather be, you know, divorced infertile. They would, you know, like to die earlier rather than be fat. And for that, you know, for some people that feels like a fear (laughs) of being fat. And I always reframe that to be, you know, actually what they're afraid of is being treated like a fat person, you know, who inherently Mm -hmm. and yeah, has anti-fat bias all the time. So there's both. And I don't, so yeah, I don't want to discount, you know, what my friends experience and feel by never using the term. I feel like I've I've probably
0: had a similar experience in terms of people's personal connection to the words, um, but I'll sort of flip back and forth with anti-fat bias and fat phobia. Um, but yeah, I, so I don't know if you know how much or, or much about my work, but so body neutrality, the way I define it is about stripping away the added or false or inflated uh, moral significance, judgments, and meaning from the body so that you can just see it clearly for what it is, which ultimately is not necessarily a neutral experience because for people in marginalized bodies, you strip that away and you start to realize, okay, well, I did hate my body or I was afraid of gaining weight because I thought it meant something about me. And now I realize I hate my body or I'm afraid of gaining weight because of what, what you just said, like, I'm afraid of how society will treat me. It's not exactly better insofar as you still have a huge problem and a whole mm. lot of stuff to deal with in there. It's mm-hmm. not like everything is solved, but it does take the blame and shame yeah. out of it. So now you're mm-hmm. really looking at the actual situation and your anger and, you know, all of the feelings that come along with that can get aimed appropriately towards mm-hmm. the treatment that you are wanting to avoid or hating so much rather than yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I always ask people to think of like their body is not the problem with how they feel. Yeah. About yeah, their body. It's not a problem. It's not a project to be, you know, solved. Yes. Society is where it's coming from. It's not you. Yeah, for sure.
0: So that is a good bridge to this uh, question I had. So on your website, you write bodies are inherently political, especially those that don't conform to what society deems worthy and desirable. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that.
1: I think it's, you know, assume perhaps for some folks uh, with more desirability and social capital that, you know, it's an assumption that your body, you know, has anything to do with how you're treated or, you know, if you just think yourself into positivity, Mm -hmm. um, it'll be fine and great. But like, when we look at a person, it's impossible not to read something, either make assumptions or see something. So just existing is inherently political and we can't escape our body. So yeah, they, all of them mean something, regardless if it's something negative or something we associate positively, it's impossible to separate, you know, our body and the political nature that we have.
0: Yeah. And do you think that's true for all bodies or just for folks oh, yeah. in marginalized bodies? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. We look at white folks and see, you know, or assume that life has been, you know, easier or class mm-hmm, markers. Um so yeah, of course. Um yeah. thin folks, we, you know, naturally see like a life that has been more easeful when navigating right. spaces. Like they've never had to wonder or we have never had to wonder whether or not, you know, they can find their like so, clothing size or like sit somewhere yeah. or whatever it is. So yeah, on both ends for sure.
0: Yeah. I also, something I I talk a lot with clients is sort of separating the part of this fear. Um, one part is the valid thing that's true, which is, you know, the discrimination that, that yeah. you would have to face. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is a Made- up narrative about how that thin person is probably happy and satisfied and living oh, this life yeah. that feels mm-hmm. amazing, right? Like it is definitely associated with like, if you have a privileged body, you will feel all the ways I want to feel. And that certainly isn't true. But do they face these same challenges? No,
1: yeah. I mean, I of course, people could have eating disorders, but so often people get positive praise yeah. uh, for weight loss after because they had cancer. <laughs> like we just don't yeah, know absolutely what's going on for people? Definitely.
0: Um, so you talk about how disrupting the dominant narrative about bodies is activism, and you talk about how just existing in a body is political. Um, and it, it sounds to me like being visible is Mm -hmm. one of the, the sort of directions you take that work. Like you encourage people to be visible and own the fact that being visible, especially in a marginalized body is an act of protest almost. Mm -hmm. Um, would you say that,
1: that that is, am I reading that correctly? The let's see. I always think of folks who are marginalized. Oftentimes they're both hyper visible and invisible. Um, Mm -hmm. I think about that for black folks and also for fat folks who, you know, we can't not see people, but oftentimes people are ignored or also, you know, people in wheelchairs or who use mobility devices. Um, yeah. So being hyper visible, but also invisible when it comes to like, whether or not people will, you know, make eye contact, um, so right. I like, you know, when we have to be visible, I like to reframe it as yes, an active protest, like you just being and choosing to leave your house, like recognize that for the resistance and you know how hard it is for you to do that. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone then in a
0: marginalized body who's sort of struggling with all of this stuff and you know, wanting to adopt a different perspective on their body and wanting it to feel like part of this sort of resistance that you talk about, how how do you tell them to go about that?
1: Yeah. I think the, you know, knowing your body is not a problem, but also finding community because when you're like a a singular individual trying to do this work, you know, it's hard. And again, you know, it's not individual work to be done, but if you're doing it in community with other people, you know, yeah, there's just a magic that happens there. So finding community is definitely something that I'm always looking at. Yeah. And also what if they were coming
0: at you and and wanting to like alter their perspective on health? Is there any advice that you go to or is it always just this like questioning, challenging, unpacking?
1: Hmm. Other than the questioning, challenging and unpacking, no, I guess it would still be some of the unpacking is, you know, looking at healthism, which is like the idea that if you're not trying to be healthy, you're like not worthy or, you know, not on the correct like life path. Um, so yeah, I think unpacking that a bit more and, you know, if quote being healthy, you know, was, let's see if eating olive oil, a vegan diet or whatever it was, um, was the way to be healthy. Like people would not die of heart attacks or stroke or anything like that. You know, if they were doing all the things right, you know, they wouldn't die. And whoever the personal trainer on the biggest loser who ended up having a heart attack, you know, like that would, would, you know, should never have happened to him if he was exercising and eating well, but like that is not true. So like, yeah, it's just ridiculous out there.
0: Yeah. A lot of unpacking and challenging for sure. Um, Okay, so I don't remember why I wrote this question down. (laughs) I hope it was relevant to something but uh, I used to participate in the kind of like before I found body neutrality and like the path I'm on now I would do a lot of like body positivity stuff back when that was a very particular look, Mm -hmm. Uh, the social media version of it. Um, that I've come to see as deeply problematic, uh, particularly coming from people who look like me, which would be like showing pictures of my body's quote unquote flaws and talking about how I've learned to love or accept them all kind of, I don't know that I necessarily said this, but definitely through the lens of like, and you can too. Um, and now obviously I'm a lot more aware of my own privilege and the fact that this kind of space needs way more representation of thin well, the last thing it needs rather is representation of thin, white, able-bodied folks. So uh, I don't do it anymore, but I I see it constantly still, mm-hmm. especially on TikTok. And uh, I'm curious what you make of these posts uh, and your thoughts on it.
1: I mean, I think you've said it already. The people who've also like made their entire brands like Rachel hollis is one of them i didn't realize that it was only from like posting her bikini body with like some stretch marks on her belly is like how she went from like quote nobody to being a gazillionaire and having like her own series of books but Yes, it's ridiculous, but also shows just you know how body positivity went from like fat activism mm-hmm. to something you know that really again helps those who are closest already to having privilege. Um, I yeah, just tell people to unfollow or on TikTok like, <laughs> yeah yeah push the button say I'm not interested in this content, uh, because yeah people are you know using the ideas of marginalized folks to increase their social capital for sure.
0: Yeah. And and I would say that the social construction of capital H health you were talking about before, it like, I feel like it plays into, maybe not exactly around health, but it plays into that same idea of uh, like making it the, like really reinforcing the connection between bodies that look a certain way and happiness and mm-hmm. health and mm-hmm. all that stuff as well. Even if it's unintentional, it's still there. And I unfollow or on TikTok. I just I'm recently on TikTok, so I'm still exploring it. But I do the thing where I mark it as uninterested
1: or whatever constantly yeah. and it's still flooding my feed. It drives me nuts. I find that with uh, dietitian content yeah. <laughs> as well. Yeah, Cause I have a you know a few friends who are dietitians and I follow them, but then it yeah, just wants to show me every dietitian out there. And I'm like, no, I don't want this content at all. <laughs> Weird weight loss stuff. Yeah, very yeah. relatable. Um, so I know you do consultation
0: work around centering the most marginalized, uh, folks, and I'm curious to hear more about that, um, for myself, as well as for other like personal trainers, nutritionists, therapists, coaches, whoever who are listening, uh, what does that mean? What does that look like?
1: So I have hour long appointments and typically people, you know, will bring a couple, I will you know, cases or clients or consultation questions, um, and then we'll talk through them. And again, it's a lot of unpacking, you know, mm-hmm. I always say I don't have the you know answers because that's impossible, mm-hmm. but how can people think through, you know, their work with somebody in order to more mm-hmm. affirm, you know, their, you know, that person and their reality. So it's not just like trying to brush things under mm-hmm. the rug. And oftentimes people will gaslight people's experience by telling them, no, 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 you know, <laughs> people love you just the way you are, whatever it is. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And then, what other resources can they you know provide to that person type of stuff so usually it is like consultation questions or like also personal development like mm. jessica i heard you using like the word fat you know on this podcast right. i you know need to unpack a lot of my internalized fat phobia or anti fatness and then yeah just walk Got through it. that as it's... well
0: oh that's super interesting um i i also know that you're you're really passionate about adopting fat activism and anti-racism as core values and encouraging people to seek out uh, fat positive or like dietitians of color. Um, So in your experience, why would you say that is so important for people and what
1: changes when they do? So if I am asking people to like find a therapist or, you know, I left UC Davis and people are going to ask you know find other dietitians uh, when people are able to you know say fatness without flinching you know it gives you an idea of their body politic already um and you know whether it doesn't say whether or not somebody's anti-fat or not but at least they're able to have conversations and they've thought through things and the same with the connection of racism, white supremacy and capitalism like these are questions that I want you know people, to be able to, you know, assess in their providers and their trainers and their coaches, because without, you know, those, uh, understandings, like their reality won't really be validated or also people won't be stretched to grow. So even if it's, you know, for folks who are thin and white, like there's still like societal context. So, you know, it's not just for marginalized people being seen it's for all of us, you know, really doing this work together.
0: Absolutely. Um, Okay. So you have a new book coming out. How cool is that? Yeah. I have a book coming out in June. So I'm like very excited about uh, all of this and seeing the new wave of books that are coming out this Mm -hmm. year is making me very happy. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what it's about?
1: Sure. Um, In the first, let's see. Well, actually there's the intro where I, you know, bring in more client stories and also really discuss like that I can't do a lot of quote, evidence-based, um, you know, research because marginalized people are just not in research. So, Mm. you know, everything in this book Mm. is going to be, you know, my experience, my client's experience, my friends, um, inherently. (laughs) And then, you know, the first like actual section is like the actual problems that we're facing, particularly as black women, Uh, who are really centered in the book. Um, You know, it's like the resilience that we're supposed to have the restriction, you know, making ourselves smaller, Mm. respectability, you know, amongst ourselves, but how all these things are really, you know, trying to keep us safe in, you know, the US. And then It's like the supposed solutions, which are body positivity, which of course doesn't cure anything, um, health, you know, just being healthy will make us better, um, intuitive eating, which I can, you know, talk for a while about and then wellness, you know, is supposed to be this panacea of, Mm -hmm. but like none of it is actually addressing any of the, any of the issues. And then the third section just talks about joy and, you know, coming back to ourselves and seeing that. Um, And then centering that versus, you know, all the other stuff that folks attribute to um, black women, like our ability to like labor and work and overwork ourselves. So how can we center joy? And so it's a very conversational book because, you know, folks have read Fearing the Black Body, which I highly recommend. Um, It's 400 pages and 400 years (laughs) of, um, you know, really hard things and I really wanted this to be a book that people were able to get to the mm. end you know I pick up nonfiction all the time you know I'll start it or I'll skip around but yeah so this book mm. is fun um, I really want people to yeah enjoy it and be able to finish it <laughs>
0: I love that. For anybody listening, Sabrina Strings is the author of *Fearing the Black Body*. It is a great book. It is a long book. Uh, it is an in-depth look at the history of racism and fat phobia intersecting. I think it's really important. And I also fully recognize that if you're in the mood for like a chill uh, liberation book, it is <laughs> it is not chill. Um, I love that you're doing it conversationally. I also think this idea of y- you said that black women's ability to weaponize joy and build community is so healing. And Mm -hmm. first of all, just the phrase weaponized joy makes me very happy. I think that's incredible. And second of all, the idea that, that joy can be a part of this like movement towards liberation, both individually and socially is so powerful.
1: It was, you know, I was not the first person to say that actually I talked about, um, you know, joy as resistance, as rebellion. And, you know, my friend Shana, who happens to be on the cover of the book, um, said that I really talk about it more as like a weapon in a society that is, you know, constantly trying to strip us, you know, of joy, of our humanity and how, you know, in community, Mm. we're able to come together and, you know, weaponize joy for our, you know, sanity, community and ourselves.
0: Yeah. I freaking love that. I
1: love that. It's
0: such a beautiful sentiment. It's so true. It's so powerful. And it's also just not how people generally think about liberation. Like we yeah. think about it as being this, and it is obviously super dark, super heavy, you mm-hmm. know, like a slog to a, a finish line that's never going to come. But this is so, this is just so powerful of a thought that especially seeing marginalized folks centering joy that in and of itself flips the whole script Yeah, and, and they deserve it right Mm -hmm. like it's also just their birthright so the fact that it gets to be both this sort of coming home and and resistance against the culture is so amazing
1: yeah yeah
0: anything else you want to share about the book or any anything else coming to mind that we haven't talked about or I haven't asked about yet
1: no I think we did a great general overview I would say that if folks you know the book is, and has been important for clinicians, for coaches and trainers. So even though, you know, black women are centered, um, if folks are, you know, have anyone in their life who, you know, has an eating disorder or yeah. struggles with body stuff and people want to support them. Um, I've gotten great feedback from, you know, clinicians and coaches, and Amazing. then anybody who's experienced an eating disorder who hasn't been seen, I've gotten great feedback from, you know, those books as well. And it's an audiobook. Awesome. I read it, I laugh at myself in it. So that's nice. what I would say about the book. That's so great. Um, amazing. Well, it's been an absolute
0: pleasure having you here and getting to talk to you about this stuff. Uh, you want to tell people where they can find you if they want to learn more about you?
1: Sure. So Instagram is at jessicawilson.msrd. Twitter, if it exists, is Jessica Wilson <laughs> RD. Who knows? And then um, I have a teeny tiny following on TikTok um, and it's at by Jessica Wilson. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. We're just messing around right now.
0: Same, I get that. Um, all right, well, amazing to have you and everyone listening, you know where to find me at com, at on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, probably Facebook, I don't know. Uh, and yeah, thank you for listening and I will catch you next week.